conductive wire And you were so electric I had no say when you came so near And just passed right through me Hey everyone, welcome to Geekdom is Back, and today I am joined by Maria Sherman. We are talking all about her book, Larger Than Life, which covers many, many boy bands. Some I have listened to, some I have not, but Maria, for anyone who isn't familiar with your work, can you just quickly introduce yourself? Yeah. Hi, I'm the aforementioned Maria Sherman. Uh, Larger Than Life, A History of Boy Bands from New Kids on the Block to BTS is my first and so far only book. It explores the boy band phenomenon through the decades and also kind of interrogates what boy bands symbolize in terms of gender and race and identity and all of these big questions that may seem extra musical but are inherently related to pop music. But prior to this, I've spent the last decade plus, I guess it's been about a decade, or exactly a decade now, um, writing about music professionally uh, for a lot of music publications, Rolling Stone, Spin, Entertainment Weekly, NPR, MTV, you name it, I've probably written something there. And it's probably about boy bands. (laughs) Or emo, one of the two. (laughs) Obviously, very similar genres you have going on there. (laughs) They're young men performing for audiences largely comprised of young women. There are some similarities. There are. Maybe that could be your (laughs) next book, The Similarities Between Boy Bands and Emo Bands. (laughs) Oh, yeah. I would like to have a a readership of three people. (laughs) (laughs) One would be me, if that helps. Oh, good. Yeah, it does. It does a little bit. Thank you. I need the ego boost. (laughs) So with Larger Than Life, for anyone who has followed any boy bands, they'll get that title reference. But what was it about boy bands that really interested you in diving deep on the history behind them, sort of where they originated, and all of the problems also that have come with boy bands over the years? Yeah, um, I am sort of like a late-in-life boy band fan. Uh, it was the One Direction era that really sort of dug under my skin and entered my bloodstream and went into my heart. I'll work on that metaphor, but I committed to it. <laughs> um, but it was it was really One Direction that sort of spoke to me and, and just sort of elicited this unbridled enthusiasm and joyful response that boy bands sort of are created to do in, in its listenership and in its audiences. Um, and then I found in my profession as, as a working music critic that there wasn't a lot of um, maybe intellectual curiosity around boy bands beyond um, considering them to be this like manufactured, uh, mechanized music machine, which is arguably the same language you could use to describe all pop music or all <laughs> pop performers at, at like a, at a certain level. Um, but I, I wanted to sort of just give boy bands the same sort of consideration that I would any other form of music and sort of unpack why it is that they seem to be this sort of um, continuously degraded space in, in popular music. And I think like the most obvious reason, and and there are a lot, um, is is simply that when we talk about boy bands, what we're really doing is we're talking about their audiences, which are young women and also some, some queer youth, but primarily the images of like a, like a child or like a tween or teen screaming fangirl who has always been sort of derided in in pop culture. And, uh, I wanted to sort of unpack why boy bands have the sort of effect that they do and also just kind of give them space in music history. It's, it's, I think I say on like page one that 
it's a little absurd that this book didn't exist prior to 2020. Yeah. Seeing as uh, some of these boy bands are responsible for like the best selling biggest albums of all time. And so I feel very lucky and grateful to be the one to give them that consideration and also hopefully do it in a way that feels inclusive. Yeah, when I heard about this book, I was like, oh my goodness, how do I not have a book like this on my shelf already? Because (laughs) I have a bookshelf over to my left here, and I have two shelves just dedicated to music books. And I was looking at it, and I was like, okay, we have at least one emo book, we have a ton of punk books, we have, you know books specifically about The Clash, Green Day. I have some 33 and a third books. And I'm just like, where's the boy band books, you know? Because growing up, NSYNC especially, but Backstreet Boys, those were sort of the two that I was into. I had the CDs. I had probably posters. I can't confirm that because my memory is horrendous. But it was (laughs) one of those things where I was like, I know there's some interesting things that went on throughout their careers. I knew they were kind of brought together by these certain circumstances. And then everything with Lou Pearlman, I remember hearing about it, but it felt like it just didn't blow up the way you think it should have as far as media coverage and people wanting to dive deeper into just what these bands were all about, how they came to be, and how they inevitably fell apart as well. Yeah, it is interesting because you would think that since some of the sort of exploitative nature and the sort of seedy Svengali types that tend to create boy bands, there's there's often a figurehead sort of behind the scenes pulling the strings. You think with all of those elements, which seems sort of like theatrical to me they seem they seem like something out of a movie that there would be a little bit more interest and um i think there is it just hasn't been given the same sort of space and and just like introspection to it just simply hasn't been written in this way before um that's not to say that these things weren't being reported like i think lou perlman who you mentioned earlier the man who created the backstreet boys and then later nsync to compete with the backstreet boys there, there's been much kind of written about him, but unfortunately not enough. And he passed away four years ago. Mm-hmm. One of my dreams was to hopefully to go to the prison in Orlando where he was. I really wanted to interview him and it didn't end up happening, which is unfortunate. But uh, there's a great book about him specifically, if anybody's interested in, um, written by this journalist, Tyler Gray, a couple of years ago. But yeah, just this, there are so many things surrounding this music outside of the actual just like hook heavy pleasantries of it that you would think that there would have been some sort of deeper interrogation. And that's not to say that my book is the end-all be-all. I think it really establishes a sort of like foundation. It's supposed to act like a primer into this world. And then hopefully if you find a group or like a phenomenon in this that you're interested in, you'll go and do research. And then hopefully someone will write a book about it. I, I really think that there there's like something to be said about those characters behind the scenes, behind boy bands that like is worth so many more books. <laughs> Yeah, and I love that you included a recommended reading section at the end of the book. I'm always a sucker for those, and I'm like, I do not need more books, but here we are. (laughs) Someone is telling me to read more books, and I only happen to have one of the books you recommended at the end, and I believe it's the Appetite for Destruction book, Mm -hmm. and I have not read it yet, but now that you have mentioned that in your book, I'm like, okay. I need to make some room after some Stephen King reading and, you know, read some more of these music books that I have. But with Larger Than Life, you really go sort of band by band with all of the 
larger bands within the scene and sort of break down how they came to be. Was it hard to choose which bands to do or was it kind of a no-brainer because you have bands like New Kids on the Block, Backstreet Boys, NSYNC, and even now BTS? I think I always knew how I was going to structure it sort of from the beginning, but I could definitely see why it, it might be like, oh, why did she pick these random ones? Specifically, I think the Jonas Brothers one might seem like a little bit of an outlier to some people. But when I went to structure it, I knew that because this was a history and because it was a chronology, I really needed to have like definitive boundaries surrounding decades or periods of time. Yeah. So it would, so it would kind of align with like what would be someone's adolescence or like their high school, middle school experience or whatever, because that would be the group that they, if they're reading this from a nostalgic perspective, as I imagine most people will, but hopefully I'll also get some like just people who are curious about filling gaps in their pop music history, picking this up. I needed to make sure that like there was the definitive boy band of that time in their like American or Canadian high school or, or whatever it is, or middle school rather, I guess high school would be a little bit older. So that was kind of easy to structure. However, I do, it might seem a little strange simply because there, I think there are boy bands that are like, take that is obviously globally bigger than like a, like a Jonas Brothers were at the time, just because it was more of like a flash in the pan sort of thing, tethered to Disney Channel. But it, it was mostly just structured to have this like definitive decades represented. And then I found that the groups that I did end up picking really served um, as exemplars of like whatever cultural movement was happening at the time. Like I, I think Backstreet Boys and NSYNC were kind of an obvious choice, but then even just like the next era with, with the Jonas Brothers, I think them just being sort of this like flagship group for teenage abstinence is, is kind of perfect because it really does sort of speak to what was happening in, in like Western youth at the time, this whole purity movement. And there are other examples of that. Um, BTS, obviously, because they're the biggest K-pop boy band in the world, or, or maybe the biggest group in the world. So some of them are kind of just obvious and some took a little bit more interrogation. Yeah, particularly with BTS, they're a band I had heard of but because mm -hmm. I have since fallen out of my boy band phase, you know, basically I didn't listen to anything from the Jonas Brothers on. And it's not because I didn't think the music was good. It was just not where I personally was at. So to get your perspective on those bands and to get that moment where you dive deeper into each of them and sort of how they had their career paths go and the breakups too, because so many of the boy bands have these breakups where more than one of them will try to go solo and not everyone can be a Justin Timberlake, for instance. Mm -hmm. So you have yeah. these careers that wanted to continue, but then fizzled out for one reason or another. And you get this look at how there is always going to be sort of one or two people within each of these groups that really just have this chance to shine and make the most of it and get to continue doing what they love. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting when they sort of succeed in eclipsing the success of their group. It's, it's rare that, I mean, the Justin Timberlake thing, we use him as the example because that's sort of like the end all be all, but I would right. also say the same for, for Bobby Brown sort of immediately following new edition. It is rare and it is kind of unfortunate because there's always sort of clear, like a clear front, person even though there isn't meant to be they're supposed to be the sort of like democratizing force yeah and you know there's always going to be the one who has just like a little bit more boyish charm just a little bit more charisma that endears people to them and then usually that um, translates very well to a solo pop career 
I, I tried to be as gentle with that topic as possible because I know that there are some people who still have their favorites from a group that maybe didn't go on to do something so impressive or break all these records. Um, and I think there's merit to that too. But yeah, the sort of post boy band story is always interesting because it's not only that they're trying, they're like individuating and, and trying to like figure out who they are on their own, but it's also like they're trying to figure out who they are as men after being perceived as boys for so long. Yeah, it's kind of wild when you consider how formulaic a lot of these bands seem to be. Like you said, there's inevitably one that has the boyish charm. And you can tell that there's this pattern throughout these decades of how the different members in each band acts. You know, there's someone who ends up being the front person, even though there isn't meant to be a front person, because they are all, for the most part, singing. A lot of them are dancing. So it's this thing that is perceived as equal. But once you dig into it a little more and you find out how unequal it can be, you're kind of like, oh, wow, they all kind of went through the same thing. And granted, some will have varying degrees of success with solo careers. You have this notion that no matter what all of these guys did, there was no way all five of them were going to be able to carry on separately. Yeah, I will say the only I, I there it does appear like some of that may be shifting with K-pop. I think K-pop groups do a really excellent job of, of sort of promoting each member individually, so there isn't such a clear cut front person. Mm-hmm. Like in, in in the way that those groups are constructed, often there is sort of a leader type, but that's just kind of because he has the best vocals and he's going to be performing the most. Or um, in like the case of BTS, it's RM, and a lot of that is because he speaks the best English. So they're a K-pop band that it was sort of marketed towards an American audience among other audiences. And there's a reason we kind of see him as sort of a front face. It's, it's only based on language. Um, and, and also with K-pop groups now and boy band groups now, they're allowed to do solo singles sort of divorced from the actual group. Okay. So you'll get like an RM song or like a sugar song or a J-Hope song. Those are members of BTS while they're still actively in the group. And I think that's sort of like a, like a really genius way of solving the sort of like five after five years we're breaking up because everybody wants to be Justin Timberlake crisis because you're allowing those individuals to sort of express their creativity on a solo level while also maintaining the longevity of the group that they're a part of it like BTS has been around for seven years that's kind of like veterancy in, in in the boy band story that's quite some time to be a group yeah earlier you mentioned the way you structured the book and I am really big on just asking people about their process for creating anything. And writing a book is something that I've had a passing interest in, but have never actually started because that seems very intimidating. So with this, because you had written about boy bands so much prior to it, was it something you were approached about or was it an idea you had and you kind of shopped it around to publishers? Yeah, I think it happened a little bit unusually. Um, one day I, I just got a cold email from the woman who ended up becoming my editor saying, I work at Black Dog and Leventhal. We're an imprint of Hachette. We want to do a boy band book and we want you to write it. Are you interested? And um, that was an intimidating email to receive because I felt too young. And uh, like I always wanted to write a book and, and I hope I get the opportunity to again um, but I didn't think that like my, I had the chops to do it. And this is such a, a huge thing to take on. I definitely feel the sort of responsibility of a lot of people's fanaticisms, <laughs> I guess, on, on my shoulders. Um, but I, yeah, so I uh, accepted it and then I had to write sort of an abridged book proposal, um, which is, I, I guess, just like 
a couple thousand words shorter than what most people do when they have an agent and they're trying to shop it around. Um, the publisher loved it. And then I was off. I actually started writing it before I even had signed a contract, which I do not re- recommend anybody doing. Um, <laughs> but it was simply because they wanted the book out this year. Um, and I was on a sort of tight deadline. So I was like, okay, I'm going to start now. And it was my obsession for two years. And uh, now it's out in the world. And writing a book is definitely an intimidating thing. Um, I keep describing it as like an incredibly arduous and torturous thing that like I really can't wait to do again because it was sort of a nightmare. (laughs) It's actually sort of a lot like living in a socially distant reality. I felt very equipped for, for this new mode of being because I was already staying at home working all the time, and now I'm just doing it again. Yeah, I really get the sense that once someone writes that first book, they find they're sort of addicted to the idea of it, at least, and then they want to keep going and going. And you have people who will write full-on novels, never have them published, go on, write something else, and then, you know, it could be five or ten years before they even get someone who is interested in publishing this. So the fact that you were approached does seem to be a little unusual in the sense that they had to be looking for someone to write a book about this specific topic that you happened to be obsessing over and had already written, I imagine, dozens upon dozens of articles about. So it feels like you had this experience writing about these bands already. And that's what appealed to the publisher to approach you about it. Because like you were saying, there aren't a ton of people who are obsessing over boy bands and writing about them necessarily in the same way that you do. And while it's obvious there's some sort of market for that, you know, I imagine BTS fans will support anything about that band at all. Well, yeah, but if it, if they're portrayed in the way that they appreciate, I've definitely been on the Fair. receiving end of uh, K-pop fans' mobilization efforts because they've disliked something that I wrote or the w- way in which I've written it because I don't think I've ever been particularly critical of K-pop outside of the sort of exploitative practices that everybody should be critical of, and I'm critical of that in every facet of music as I am in this book. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm certainly, I certainly recognize that I'm very grateful, and it was a little bit strange that I I was simply approached out of the blue, but I think that also if if anybody listening to this is like curious or interested in writing a music book, I think that shows that there's interest out there. And there are so many topics like this one where it feels like something that is incredibly impactful culturally, but maybe hasn't been given the same like thought or the, or the space that a book kind of takes up and those stories need to be told. It feels like a little bit of a rebellious action to write a boy band book. Like I'm sort of (laughs) challenging pre-existing musical canon by saying like, no, I mean, I don't know. Jimi Hendrix is great, but so is NSYNC. I don't don't know. (laughs) Yeah, because the book is all encompassing of boy bands on a broad sense. Do you see yourself ever just picking one band like One Direction, let's say, and just doing a full book on only One Direction? I think somebody else should write that book. (laughs) I love that idea. Yeah, I just there are so many like brilliant crit one direction is is also it's kind of interesting to see because maybe it's my of my age where i'm part of a generation where there are a lot of more like music and art critics who are like in their late 20s or early 30s and are women and have interest in the subject that there are so many other talented people who, who should definitely write a one direction book but i'm not opposed to the idea of writing a book on a single band with larger than life you make a point of 
keeping it playful, but also gearing the conversation more towards adults, which I think Mm -hmm. is very interesting. This is definitely not a book that I would say middle school kids should go and read right away. You know, let them grow up and read it in that sort of nostalgia factor way that you mentioned earlier. But this is PG-13 plus. (laughs) Very much so. And you even get in references to, you know, Blink-182. I was reading this and I actually took a picture of the specific paragraph that mentions Blink-182 and I sent it to some friends because I was like, guys, look at this book I'm reading. It's fantastic. (laughs) And they were like, what (laughs) is that? that. I need to know. And I was like, it's not out yet, so don't tell on me. But here's the Amazon link. So, you know, it's one of those things where I think with music, people can just get excited about even the smallest of things. And that can really carry a fan base. You know, you mm-hmm. mentioned with BTS that you've sort of seen both sides of the fan base. And because they're really passionate about it, even if maybe they didn't exactly like what you said, I'm sure it still got promoted in some way because they had something to say about it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I am, I guess, like a little bit trepidatious to see what the response will be because this is also like written with some humor. It was important for me to make sure that by writing this, it was smart, but it was also fun and funny because I think that is what makes boy band so great. I wanted to like keep the integrity of, of like the boy band spirit alive, which is that it is kind of silly and at times can be a little embarrassing, but is really just a sort of like unrelenting, like happy experience. Um, that said, I do get a little tongue-in-cheek. I do get a little sarcastic in moments, and I I hope people don't read that as, like, straightforward sincerity and get really angry. (laughs) And and I feel like I had... I had to write it that way because otherwise boy bands are just, like, the most sincere and earnest thing uh, pretty much in the world. (laughs) And, like, in in your appreciation for it and in the actual music, obviously, behind the scenes and in business, business, nothing is totally so wholesome. Um, So I had to sort of, like edge it up a little bit um so so it wouldn't be just sort of like overwhelmingly uh silly i guess i don't know i'm still working through that and figuring out how to totally explain how i found this balance but it just sort of seemed natural and it made sense to me um and i hope that when a member of o-town reads the o-town section they get that i don't actually hate o-town i was just making a joke <laughs> i think personally because it lined up with my sense of humor really well. I was understanding where you were coming from. I was like, oh, yes, Maria understands me. (laughs) Okay, good. Oh, thank God. Okay. I'm very worried. (laughs) Yeah, it felt like you had this good balance of knowing when to keep the serious topic serious, like when Lou Pearlman and that whole situation went down. It wasn't making light of what these bands went through, but you keep it lighthearted enough in other parts to where you're like, okay, she understands that, you know, this is music. And yes, while it is a business, there's something just innocent and lighthearted about these boys who were brought together, whatever way that happened. And the fact that they were just on stage singing and dancing, which for the most part, not a super serious thing. It's supposed to be fun. And with girls screaming their heads off at all of these concerts, you know, they are clearly having fun. And for them, it might be a serious thing. But again, that just depends on the fan base and how passionate they are. So it's this fine line of people taking this very, very seriously, but also knowing it's 
music and it's supposed to be fun. Yeah, absolutely. I, and I, I think if someone is sort of currently active in, in their boy band obsession and they're reading this because they want to learn more about their favorite boy band, I'm not sure that that's what this book will deliver on. This is more so that, um, this book sort of exists for people to sort of to connect the dots between boy bands and sort of learn more about the fascination. It's not necessarily where you're going to learn juicy bits of um, information. If you are a diehard fan already, I think everybody learned some, everybody will learn something from this, but I, yeah, I was, I was talking to some Backstreet Boys fans on Instagram and they're like, we're going to fact check you. And I was like, that's so intimidating. I already paid someone to do that. Yeah. Um, but, but like you probably know some stuff that we don't even have access to. So um, thank you for that. <laughs> They probably have these very specific scrapbooks that they kept from the Backstreet Boys days that have all this random information that you probably can't get a hold of now. But I think what's interesting is the fact that you do make connections back to bands that go even beyond when the term boy bands came about, because you mentioned the Temptations, the Four Tops, mm-hmm. and you have these groups that, you know, maybe they were a little older, maybe they were late teens, early 20s when they started, but it's really the same sort of thing. They weren't 14, 15, 16 necessarily, and you get this feeling that because of the success of groups like that, someone was like, oh, let's just make them a little younger and appeal to a different audience maybe and see where that gets us. And it blew up like crazy in the, you know, late 90s, early 2000s. Well, I will say like the the Jackson 5, obviously, Michael Jackson was like super young. They're, yeah. they're, they were young. They were just performing songs that sort of made them seem older. And then, of course, there was like a like a race conversation there. When you see black boys singing love songs, it's coded in the mainstream as being more sexual than if white boys do the same exact thing. It's actually strange because I was looking back and I was thinking about like even Backstreet Boys and NSYNC. They were teenagers, but some of them were pretty old. Like Kevin Richardson was like in his mid-20s when this was already happening, which is like not old at all, but seems pretty old for for um, a boy band. Yeah. Um, but sort of returning to your previous point, um, yeah, it was it was important for me to try and figure out where the boy band phenomenon starts and i i hope people read this and they kind of realize it's a little bit inconclusive um i i detailed very very quickly a sort of like brief male vocal group tradition because i think Mm -hmm. as soon as you have groups of young boys dressing the same and singing secular songs that's so clearly like the format of what boy bands were and then when it becomes love songs it's like officially a boy band um it it was it was important for me to like recognize that because it's not just like new kids on the block happened and then now there are boy bands which i think is honestly the public perspective because you would say like most people have been asking me like about and and they'll use the term the golden age of boy bands referencing backstreet boys and nsync and i think that's really interesting because like it sort of was for me because i was a kid at that time but i don't know if there's like a golden age because it wasn't like their music was the most inventive. Surely they were selling the most records and maybe that's the metric. But yeah, it, it was sort of like important for me to just sort of go back and, and try and find some sort of linear history. And it's impossible. Like even the fact that I couldn't really find a conclusive like etymology of boy band, it was just some quote from Lou Pearlman and some like tiny book is kind of insane. Yeah. And also Lou Pearlman is a con man. He's a noted liar or he was a noted liar. So it's like, who even knows if that's the real origin of it? You know, there's, 
there's so many things that are so like nebulous and inconclusive. And it is funny that you were meant when I brought up the Backstreet Boys fan and you were like, oh, they probably have like old clippings and stuff that they've maintained for so long. I bought a bunch of old teen magazines off of eBay okay. to try and do some research. And it's kind of hilarious how some of the stuff is just like straight up lies or total <laughs> fluff or like just inconsistent, like constantly incon- like answers changing all the time. So I was really reliant on other material and it was slim pickings. I thought there would be a lot more out there, even if it was just cloaked in the like, what's your favorite color language of, of teen magazines. Yeah. Um, it, it was it was kind of challenging to do research from from that perspective. Like and and when I say things were inaccurate, um, I think they would get like dates wrong or achievements wrong, just like boy band fan or boy band members themselves. And there is so much uh, Lance Bass talking about a type of girl he likes. And I'm like, come on, dude. <laughs> <laughs> like not even we all know now lance <laughs> yeah and and i mean of course there are a lot of reasons why you would hide your homosexuality or, or your queerness in boy bands and we've seen that time and time again um in boy band story but yeah it is kind of interesting to go back and look at that stuff because i'm like who even knows what really happened like um another example of that would be um i talk about when NSYNC realizes that Lou Pearlman is stealing from them and they uh, go out to this fancy dinner and they open checks that are either for $10,000 or $25,000 after three years of work, which is absurd because they were making millions in record sales. But the fact that that number is even inconclusive because Lance has said it differently twice, you know, it is, it is kind of funny that it's like some of this stuff is still so just undocumented. And I hope this book inspires people to find concrete answers in the story because it is sort of silly how how it can be um, amorphic. Yeah. And you can't necessarily blame that on the bands because they were so young at the time. They yeah. didn't really understand the business from that sort of more mature perspective. And if you ask them now, I'm sure all of them would have a much better grasp on how the music business works or how it was supposed to work for them anyway. And it totally and completely failed them because they trusted one wrong person. And you see that when you have people skimming money from companies and it takes them years to realize it. And it's just so unfortunate when you hear these kinds of stories even though it happened, you know, decades ago at this point, pretty much almost two decades ago anyway. And you feel bad for them. But at the same time, you're kind of like, okay, we know who is at fault for this. And you don't blame any of the members. So you hope for the best for them because legal battles are so long and tedious. Mm -hmm. And most people won't care to read about them. So I think the way you covered it works perfectly with the whole vibe of the book. It's like, this thing happened. I'm not going to go into major details about it, but I'm going to tell you what you need to know, what's inconsistent. And then, you know, if you want to dig deeper into the music business as a whole, that's totally up to you. And as someone who majored in music industry, it's something that I was like, oh, yeah, I remember hearing about this happening. And it's so fascinating and so horrible at the same time. Yeah. And so you can't really remove any of that from the boy band story. Because the the one thing that was pretty challenging about writing this is sort of isolating what I felt to be the most important aspects of the story. Because I think you could have very reason someone could very easily sort of write a boy band history through um, like as a queer history or, or as a, or sort of a race history. Um, and this book tries to cover 
all of those topics as quickly and as in depth as possible um, because there are so many elements of it that are, are so critical and, and sort of just intertwined with the actual story. And I've also always benefited from music books that talk about the business in a way that is a little bit more like colloquial or friendly. Mm-hmm. I have a hard time getting through just like music business books in general, but I think that's just because I'm stupid and I need there to be a story for me to latch on to. Uh, and I hope this acts as that for somebody where they can kind of get the gist of, of some of those exploitative behaviors. And I also think like if someone's going to write like a definitive book on like Taylor Swift or something, so much of that is going to be like drama with Scooter Braun and like rights yeah. and masters and all these things that like may not be so juicy, but when you kind of sit down and interrogate what happening and, and who's the sort of bad eggs or who the bad players are, then it is interesting. And then people are interested in sort of learning more about just business workings and, and how crappy this industry can be, I guess. Yeah. And it's also one thing when you're talking about these mega artists who so many people cared about throughout the years. And, you know, if you were talking about some artist that maybe has, you know, a hundred thousand streams on Spotify and how the a record label did them wrong. Not as many people are going to care, but when it's someone like Taylor Swift, to use your mm-hmm. example, that's something that a lot of people are going to want to read because anytime Taylor Swift's name pops up, her fans are going to go crazy. People just who are interested in music like yourself and I on a business level, we're going to want to kind of find out that story too. And even if we may not be the people to tell that story, I'm willing to bet someone is going to at some point. I feel like that's just too big. It's like when everything happened with Kesha as well and her producer and you're kind of like, okay, well, what's what? And you don't really want to go to necessarily 10 different news sources and try to piece the story together yourself. You want someone else to do all the hard work and then just give it to you. And because your book is about 200 pages long too, it's not this big grand opus about boy bands. It's like, here's what you need to know. And I am not going to put a ton of filler in. And as someone who has been reading Stephen King books for another (laughs) podcast, I greatly appreciate brevity in books right now because I've been so swamped with reading these, you know, 500 plus page books back to back to back sometimes. And with this, it was a nice breather because like I said earlier, while it was serious, it was still extremely fun to read. And I think that's important when you're trying to touch on something that maybe you could go a lot more in depth in on a more serious note, but you also still want to just have it live up to the general idea of what a boy band is. Yeah. And brevity was also key because histories in general can be a bit arduous to read if it's not presented in some sort of digestible way, if there's not a particular angle, if it's not, I guess, just presented in some sort of like cohesive narrative. I didn't want, cause I had to get through a lot of information, but I really didn't want it to sort of drag on. And that was a, a obvious fear. I, I think it probably comes across as like why we're like, all right, we got to get through this capsule history. You got to know what happened to, Backstreet Boys to create them before you can figure out the pieces of like the exploitation before you can figure out how we get to NSYNC before you can figure out how like rivalries become a part of the boy band story and and all of these sort of other seemingly extra musical but so intertwined with with the actual music things um though I think you could easily 
take each chapter of this book and write another book about it and then turn it into a boy band encyclopedia series. Yes. Uh, which would be so fun. And I, I would love that. Um, I don't know if I have it in me to write that, but <laughs> I don't even know if there's interest in that. Um, but yeah, I like, I really am happy to have this book serve as like, these are the ABCs of this story, plus some gender theory thrown in for good measure. Do with it what you will. And if like there were other books about that on, on other different types of music, I think that would be really beneficial and helpful just so you can have some of that like working understanding. I think Simon Reynolds is really good at that. Like his books on post-punk and everything really were informative for me as somebody who was not listening to cool stuff in the early eighties, nor alive um, yeah. <laughs> to get sort of like, um, like a, like an interesting, engaging history of a certain time or like, I don't know, even like our band could be your life. Uh, granted that's a very specific period of time. Yes. Um, and I, I think you're sort of, there's some freedom in limiting yourself to a certain point in time. Whereas my book starts at like 1800 something. Um, <laughs> Gregorian chants. <laughs> yes. Yeah, brevity brevity is key, and I think um, it also. I, I wanted the book to look fun, and I think maybe that also makes it feel a little less lengthy than it actually. I mean, it's still like fifty thousand words, but it's fully illustrated and and it's sort of truncated in a way where there are reoccurring, um, almost like columns. It was it's meant to look a little bit like a Tiger Beat or like a Teen Magazine, yeah. where um, you'll return to ideas, and, and that was mainly beneficial for like structure because I didn't want to have to. Um, just write like I, essays that seemed almost identical in each chapter or something where I like touch on how fan behaviors changed or how fashion changed. I'd rather have like a dedicated section and illustration for that, um, which I think worked out really well. I was very scared that it was going to look a little frivolous or something, but it really, I think it's smart and fun to look at. I'm glad you brought that up because I was literally just about to ask you about those oh. style <laughs> pages where you go over the outfits and you obviously have the denim look from Brittany and Justin. And yes. I thought that was just such a fun way to see how even fashion styles have changed for boy bands over the years, because it's like, yes, they've all had a very specific look, but it's also a specific look that can't necessarily be replicated today. They weren't just coming out in three-piece suits, because mm -hmm. if that were the case, some would have been baggy, some would have fit better, but they would have still just all been suits. They had mm -hmm. much more unique styles attributed to them, and you can, you know, take a look at an all-white getup, and you're like, oh, that's the Backstreet Boys. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and it's it's very interesting because I, I it, sometimes I think of it as like well, boy band fashion. Is it like a chicken or the egg situation where it's like the the Backstreet Boys and Sync era is so fun for me to think about because I think the fashion of the early two thousands were like impossibly bad. It's like so embarrassing <laughs> to look back at just like the super low rise jeans for women and and just like silly baggy like these white kids from Florida dressing like they were some sort of like hard hip hop group. It was so ridiculous. Um, and it's kind of funny. Cause I, I always think like, okay, did they, are they the reason the fashion is so bad? Did people look at them and think, Oh yes, we should also wear snowsuits and tiny sunglasses. This is going to work. Or was it the other way around? Um, recently I had the opportunity to interview and sing stylist of many years. And this guy is so cool. And someone, he should write a memoir for sure. Um, <laughs> and he was telling me that they were just kind of like, throwing whatever they could at the wall and, and seeing what the boys liked and just went really crazy for the fun of it. 
like the whole reason everything was bedazzled in the early 2000s was just because he decided he wanted to bedazzle something someday. And then like the boys were like, oh yeah, we love that. And then they just bedazzled everything for NSYNC for years. <laughs> it's just so silly. Um, and, and it is so like, I think when people think about boy bands, they think of the songs. Sure. But I think they also think of the image of, of what a boy band looks like. Yeah. And obviously style and fashion is, um, you, you can't sort of divorce that from the boy band story. And even when you have some of them coming back and reuniting, you had the New Kids on the Block and Backstreet Boys mashup tour, and you still think of them the way they were in the late 90s, early 2000s, not how they look now. And even if the fashion has changed and they are wearing different things on stage, you're like, yeah, nope, they're still those dorks from way before. Yeah, they are. I mean, in my heart, they are. Uh, <laughs> I don't know if so much has changed. It would be interesting if someone did a trajectory of like aging boy band, man band fashion, because I think there are a lot of similarities there. I feel like they always wear like dark neutrals and maybe like those uh, scooter denim jackets. You know what I'm talking about? They mm-hmm. don't have a collar. It's just like that button around the neck. Yeah. <laughs> That's what I just imagine all um, aging, like middle-aged boy band guys to be wearing or like an affliction clothing t-shirt or something. I don't know. <laughs> there's definitely a, there's definitely a look there as well. Um, this book does not touch on that because it's boy bands, not man bands, but that is a very funny idea. Yeah. Well, Maria, is there anything else you want to touch on with the book now that it's out? How do you feel now that your book is out in the world? Excited and terrified of criticism. (laughs) I think there's something really inherently vulnerable about spending so much time and putting so much of your love and energy into something and then sort of offering it to people for criticism or whatever. I feel so much more empathy for every band or artist I've ever interviewed in an album cycle because it is sort of a daunting, intimidating process. Um, but it's so exciting and so rewarding. And, um, if you are a person who is interested in boy bands or not, even you're just kind of curious about pop music in general, I think you'll find something interesting in here. Or if you're interested in crime and like CD players, there's a lot of that. here too. I think there, uh, there's a lot that goes sort of beyond, the actual music, um, though the music is great, and I hope it gets people feeling nostalgic and, and up and dancing. Yeah, I think being so far removed from actively listening to these bands and being obsessed with them, it helped me enjoy this book even more because I'm not someone who gets upset when someone doesn't like what I like or anything. And like I told you, I didn't really listen to anything from the Jonas Brothers on. So for me, mm-hmm. this was a learning experience because I have some friends who are obsessed with K-pop and I've just never understood it. I'm like, I guess I don't really know what's happening here. You know, I felt so out of touch. But reading this book, I was like, oh, OK, I'm kind of starting to understand why this is something that is still appealing in 2020 versus, you know, 2002 or something when Backstreet Boys and NSYNC were uber popular and you had Britney Spears, Christina Aguilera at the same time. And the thing is, you know, with artists like that, when they're sort of just put together and it's not sort of this natural friendship kind of thing, hey, we're all talented, let's start a band. There's a different vibe than when you have friends getting together and jamming and writing songs. So it felt very manufactured a lot of the time too and obviously with the Jonas Brothers they were literally brothers so that's a whole different (laughs) scenario too so it's like okay you know we kind of got away from that manufactured feel at least a little bit with the Jonas Brothers because 
they already knew each other. They've known each other their entire lives, pretty much. Yeah, but I think, like, the sort of friendship and, and brotherhood aspect of not actual brothers, like, brotherhood as a sort of yeah. a term of endearment, <laughs> I, I should clarify, because there are many brothers in the boy band story. That kind of comes with being in this world. I feel like this is, like, being in a boy band it must be such a strange experience that mm-hmm. I think camaraderie is built just by the sort of rarity and the, like, novelness of, uh, of it all, the novelty of it all. But even with, like, K-pop, it's different, too, because they have such, like, an extended training process before they even sort of debut to the world as a new group, where if you're practicing for years with somebody, you're probably going to be friendly with them. I think, like, it's even the experience of, like, when you're in school, no one asks you, like, why you became friends with somebody in school. It's, like, because they were there and we had a shared interest or we learned to have a shared interest. It's kind of, like, a similar idea. So, yeah, sometimes they sort of struggle with the, like, Obviously, this is there's a level of manufacturing happening here. That's also true, like I said at the beginning, of all pop music. I don't think that's enough to sort of discredit anything, but I understand that that like at some people sort of lose interest in that as time goes on, or they become more critical of that as time goes on, and maybe that's where they kind of drop off the boy band story. But I think for most people, it seems to be that they have a group that they really love, and then the group breaks up, and then that that sort of magic isn't repeated in the same way that can be tethered to age it doesn't necessarily have to be yeah and and for those people too i hope that they pick up this book because then they'll they'll see how their boy band sort of plays into a greater boy band story yeah well i absolutely loved it so i am going to be recommending it to anyone who will listen to me hopefully they're listening to this podcast and (laughs) maria thank you so much for coming on to talk about it i was very glad you agreed to this because i was like I haven't read anything like this before, so I was super excited before I even, you know, got the book in the mail. (laughs) Oh, well, that makes you so happy. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. All right, everyone, that does it for this episode of Welcome to Geekdom. If you want to support the podcast, you can do so through our Patreon. You can sign up for a dollar a month. That'll get you a thank you on the show. $2 a month, you get to pick a topic that myself and a guest will discuss on the show. For $5 a month, you can join the Welcome to Geekdom Slack group, where you can talk to myself and various guests who have been on the show. If you want to follow us on socials, you can do so at GeekdomPod on Twitter and at Welcome to Geekdom on Instagram and Facebook. And as always, thank you for listening and we hope you enjoy the rest of your day.